Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Faster Masters Rowing Radio. I'm here, and today, as ever, I'm joined by Marlene Royal. Hi, Rebecca, and hello, Faster Masters. It's great to have everyone back with us again. Let's kick off first with a message from our sponsors. As you know, we can't run this show without the support that we get from these brands. And it really means a lot to us that you go and check out what they have to offer. And if it's appropriate, buy their products. Our main sponsor is Pregel Rowing Camps. Are you a master's rower who needs a coaching boost? Many masters don't get regular coaching and you can learn to row faster at the Pregel Rowing Camp. The camps offer coaching by experienced, world-class coaches. You'll be working in a small group and you're guaranteed personalized coaching and recommendations. You've got individual video analysis. You will understand rowing data and how to use it to row faster. They supply boats, their new Wintech and fluid design shells, and you'll be training on a quiet three-kilometer-long rowing lake in Brno in the Czech Republic. This is not far from Prague or Vienna airports. The first camp's in July 2020, and this can be combined with competing at the Open Czech Masters Regatta. It's one of the largest regattas in Europe. The second camp is in August 2020, and it's an ideal preparation for the World Rowing Masters Regatta in nearby Ottensheim, Austria. Last year's attendees love Pregel. Here's what one of them said. Thanks for an amazing camp, Sandra, Romana and Adam. Really great recipe for an active vacation, great training opportunity, guaranteed rowing technique improvement and great fun discovering a beautiful region of the Czech Republic. Now you can get more information at pregelrowing.com or go to rowing.chat forward slash sponsors. And our second sponsor is us. It's Faster Masters. We've published two new standalone training programs. They're designed to take you into a competition. We've got one for long distance head races and one for 1000 meter side by side racing. Each lasts 12 weeks and is designed to fit around the busy lives of masters of athletes. They comprise three sessions a week, sessions, which you can do based on whether your time and your schedule allow. Detailed explanations are included on all session intensities and the work pieces as well, so you know what each is going to help you improve. Weekday training is designed to be completed within an hour on the water. You can buy your program at rowing.chat forward slash sponsor forward slash 12 week training. Now back to Faster Masters Rowing Radio. Marlene, what's on the program for March? Well, coming up in our March program, our uh, rowing program, which is the, your on-water workouts, or if you're on the ERG, your ERG workouts, and the strength program. Um, there's two programs in, in each. Um, the first one is focusing on um, March head races, because we do have people in Europe and in the UK who are racing a March head race. So, so there's one program that's going to focus on that. And the other program is focused on 1K preparation for 
later spring and, and summer regattas. So there's the rowing component to it and then also the strength component to that. Our technical focus this month is on a drill that I learned from Rebecca, which is called the J-curve drill. And so there'll be a video of that explaining the J-curve drill. And this is the third drill in a series of drills that we're doing that link each one builds on the other one. In our performance module, last month we talked about um, how to determine your racing weight. And this month we're going to talk about um, in case you have to get to your ideal racing weight, um, we're going to talk about some factors to improve your overall diet quality. And we're also going to talk about um, timing your carbohydrate intake relative to your training schedule. Um, our lifestyle module, we're going to talk about why race, you know, what influences your decision to race or not to race if you're a master's rower. And our bonus module, as usual, we're going to surprise you. <laughs> <laughs> we can't tell you everything. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering, Marlene and I have a ton of fun pulling these together for you each month. And we're like throwing up lots of ideas. Well, last, so, month, um, last month, our bonus, our bonus module was really good because we had the talk with Will Ruth. We did. So the bonus was a live webinar where you got to dial in and listen to Marlene interviewing Will. He's an expert on strength coach training. In fact, his, his moniker online is strength coach Will. And we've actually, we loved it so much. It was so useful because he understands the needs of masters rowers, as well as obviously our desire to stay strong and not get weaker as we get older. And so we've added it as a standalone little extra for anyone. You don't have to be a subscribing member of Faster Masters, although if you are, you've already gotten it in your February program. But it's on our website on the page that's called Programs. Um, and if you go and take a look, I will show you what it looks like. There we go. It's the products page. You scroll down to the very bottom line, and here at the very bottom, it says Will Ruth on strength training for masters. Um, and we've priced it at $3. So if you would like to um, buy it, it's obviously there and ready for you right now. Moving into the meat of the show, Marlene and I want to talk about. Why be a coach? How did you get to start as a coach, Marlene? Um, actually, my very first coaching job was in was in university, and I was I was rowing at Boston University, and um, I wasn't sure if I was going to stay after the first year or I was just sort of undecided about it. And um, the boatman at our at our University was um, a coach named Joe O'Connor. Everybody knew him as Oki, and he was also somebody who I grew up with in in Buffalo. We both rode at Westside Rowing Club. We grew up in the same neighborhood, and he said, "You know, I I want you to stay here and and row here, stay in Boston, stay in school here, row for Boston University. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to hire you as my work study student to work here in the boathouse, and also um, I'd like you to be a coach in the Boston University summer rowing program. And this is back in this is back in 1982, 
And at that time in Boston, there, there was nowhere to learn how to row. It was very much unlike Boston these days where you have an immense amount of, you have community rowing, you, every club has a learn to row program. In those days, there was no community rowing and no club would teach you how to row. So if you didn't know how to row, you simply had no access, no access to learning how to row. So I said, this sounds like a great idea to me. And so I accepted my first coaching job after my freshman year in university. And um, my first outing was basically, he just threw me into it. You know, we started out, we had something like six eights the first day, but, wow. um, but we had, we had, we had barges. So my first day of coaching, we had it, we had a barge with 16, 16 rowers. So eight on port, eight on starboard, and you can walk up and down in the middle. And, uh, you know, and you, we, I was just like winging it, you know, <laughs> and it was just, a, it was amazing, you know, and I, I'm out in the, you know, right around like where the starting line is for the head of the Charles. So I'm out in this huge barge, you know, moving, moving these eight people, 16 people around the basin in, in Boston, you know, in the summer, because it was a sort of a July, August program. And, um, and basically I, I just, I loved it from the first minute. And, uh, and I, I said, no matter what, I'm, I'm never going to have a, a nine to five job. I, I'm, I'm going to be a coach. That, that's it. And I just simply and practically, I just never really looked back from from that day, you know, but our, that was my, my first experience was just like, well, OK, what would I want? I was like, well, what would I want to know if I were just rowing for the first time? Right. And I learned I learned how to row from from some real, real old time coaches at Westside Rowing Club who had been professional scholars. Um, so I was just like, well, what did they tell me the first day? So I just tried the same thing. And then, you know, we, we could move people around and you could walk up to them and reposition their hands. And, you know, it was a, it was great having the barge. And and uh, our first sessions out, you know, we had six eights sometimes, you know, which is was a bit much. There probably wasn't a ton of coaching going on at that moment. But um, that was that was my first job. And and uh, I went on to do a little bit of. I did a little bit of prep school coaching at, at a school called Middlesex, which is out in Concord. But I, I very shortly after that went up to Craftsbury, which then I, you know, ended up, I was up there for about 20 years. And, um, you know, I just basically never, never looked back. And, and I now also, you know, coach frequently at Craftsbury throughout the summers. But, um, but no, I didn't want to do anything else. I, I got my formal education in occupational therapy and and hand therapy, which I loved all the material, but I really wanted to learn it to be a better coach. So um, that was that was more my motivation than actually practicing. Um, I studied both physical therapy and occupational therapy, but I ended up being a coach. <laughs> so, and so you? <laughs> my experience is so similar. I learned to row as a walk-on at my university in Cambridge. And then in the second year, they used the people who had learned the previous year to teach the beginners, the novices. And so I, I helped out there. And um, we, when we came through to the summer term, um, women raced coxed fours in those days. Um, the crew that I was coaching won their blades in bumps in May's, if you know what that is. So it was like, mm -hmm. wow, that's a well, what a, they were they were a super crew, they did really well, and um, that was great. So I kind of knew nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, but scary to think, <laughs> scary to think what we were doing back then. <laughs> One of the things I like about 
um, encouraging people who are new to the sport to come help coach is that it makes you think about what you are saying mm-hmm. and how people interpret what you're saying. So literally right now, this um, this weekend, I am teaching a learn to skull session. I do it over three weekends and you turn up for Saturday and Sunday. And my helpers are people who graduated from the exact same course a year before. Mm. And it's great. They they know more than enough. I know they know more than enough. And it's nearly all of them come away saying how useful it is. Well, that that's a great way, too. If at your club you have to put in volunteer hours, that's do, yeah. a great way to pull in some some volunteers is get the people who, who were your learn-to-row people the previous year, and, and they, they come and help help the, the novices. And, um, mm. no, it was great fun. And, and, you know, it's funny that when uh, – I, I actually started writing about rowing right back when I first started coaching too. And, it, and it's, interesting. it's so funny when you go back and you look at some of the things you wrote and how you used to, how you used to teach. And, then, and I think one thing that perhaps people don't always realize about coaches is that, is that you know, we're constantly learning and, and our approaches over time change sometimes. You know, like there are things that I thought really worked well when I was 21 years old and I was coaching somebody and trying to teach somebody how to row. And then, and then maybe 10 years later, I, I found that, you know what, I think there's a, a better approach to this that makes it more foolproof or makes it simpler. Um, and, uh, you know, th- there's, lo- there's lots of things you can go back and say, oh, well, I taught somebody to, to feather that way, but now I think it's, it's much better to feather this way. And, 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 and that's an important thing, I think, for for our students, regardless of what age they are, to understand that that you do change and you you do evolve, you learn more by listening to to other coaches. And certainly, you know, in 20 years of work at Craftsbury, I had the the phenomenal privilege of working with an incredible number of coaches from you know university crews and national team crews and Olympic teams and and you know you draw something from all of them and then you know i think i think the fanatic coaches then we're trying to we're trying to put that all together into our own language because i think as a coach it's it's very it's important to develop your own philosophy that fits your nature it's important to develop your own your own style of teaching um so that you communicate or demonstrate in a way that um that's very natural for you also, as you rightly say, there are many different ways of teaching apparently the same thing. And the more you recognize the different types of people and how they like to be taught, the more you can adapt so that you're delivering something that really resonates with them. Well, I think that when you're in a in a camp situation or say you're teaching a learn to row program, you may have a, da- a woman who's a dancer. You may have, yeah. You may have someone who's a medical professional. You may have somebody who's an orthopedic surgeon. These people are going to. Uh, you may have somebody who's a professional triathlon triathlete. Um, so these people are going to learn very, very differently. And as a coach, I think you, you, part of your skill as a coach is learning. Okay, well, how do I say this in an organic way that's going to help the dancer learn, or maybe she, maybe she doesn't want to hear anything at all. Maybe she just wants to see you in, in your single 
and she wants to row in front of you and just, you know, people, some people will say, just let me row in front of you. And I just want to, I'm just going to match what you do. And they learn that and they learn that way. Other people want you to bullet point it and write it down, you know, step, step by step by step by step. Because we call you know, that rowing by numbers. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, surgeons who have to be very precise about what they're doing often want to, you know, that's how they learn. They want to understand, you know, this that's A, then B, then C. Not that they necessarily row in a mechanical way, but they have to understand the, the rationale for it. And um, and then you might have somebody who just wants to like see how hard they can pull on the oars, and then mm. and then we'll talk about it afterwards when you get tired, you know, <laughs> or when you're in the water. Then we're, we're so. I think the summary here to our listeners is the reason we coach is because we get a ton of entertainment out of it. You guys are there to make me laugh. Well, camp. I, I always tell people camp wouldn't be nearly so much fun if you weren't here. You know. So. Good. Good. Now let's move on to our first big topic of the day: repetitive strain injuries. Now this is a perennial that comes up, particularly at this time of year, where people have been training for a long time in the northern hemisphere, sometimes indoors, and then are moving back to the water. And it's also something actually that new rowers experience as well. You're the physical therapist. Talk to us. Why do people get repetitive strain injuries? Well, the because rowing is a cyclical sport, it's a it's a repetitive sport. So in a cyclical um, type of sport, you're you're doing the same motions over and over and over again. So no matter what age you are, no matter what your rowing experience is, you know, there there can if there are some type of weaknesses, if you have some type of imbalances. Um, overuse syndromes can be very can be very common, particularly if you're doing a high volume of training. But one of the reasons we wanted to talk about repetitive strain injuries right now is because um, it's a transition time of the year for people who are coming out of winter. They're coming off of land training, and they'll soon they'll start um, moving into training on the water. And the reason repetitive stress injuries or repetitive motion injuries happen is is because you develop microscopic tears in your tissue or you just you discover um, little microscopic fractures in the bone and these happen when there's repeated stress on a tendon or on a bone but there isn't enough recovery time so that so that your body isn't able to repair the damages and so then these these areas get inflamed and they start they start to create um, painful conditions. What's what's interesting is overuse injuries are more common in females than in male rowers. And huh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, here and I'll I'll read you. I just I just made a few notes here, but um, in female rowers, the most frequent complaints are chest wall pain. So these are your rib stress fractures. Mm. followed by low back pain, followed by uh, what we call tenosynovitis. And that's basically inflammation of the tendon. The tendon, every tendon is inside a sheath. It's kind of like a cable inside a brake cable. And when there's inflammation in there, the nerve won't glide um, very mm. smoothly. And that can lead to a really painful condition, particularly of the wrist. And so, you know, mm. this is why we do, we talk a lot about proper feathering without putting a lot of strain on, on the wrist. 
in men, the most um, prevalent is low back pain. Mm -hmm. And then tenosynovitis of the wrists extensors, then chest wall pain. So it's a little bit different. You know, women are more prone to, to the stress um, on, in their chest wall and then low back, whereas for men, it's more low back and then wrist and then, and then chest wall injuries. But there's, there's different, there's a lot of factors that can trigger a repetitive strain injury. And um, there's basically, there's two types. There's internal factors and there's external factors. And um, I'll, I'll read off an example of what some of these are. The internal factors that can trigger a repetitive stress injury are your fitness level, your core stability, your muscle flexibility, or say lack thereof, um, nutrition, strength, hydration, how well you recover, your technique, your posture. There's also there's a lot of things that can just be a little bit out of whack, a little bit out of balance that can put stress on on a certain um, area. I think when we're talking about transitioning into a new season on the water, and this can be also coming off the water. So so think of any time where, you, where you're transitioning. The external factors, I think, are where you have to be really, really careful. So some of these examples that can trigger um, stress injuries, changing your boat type. You always hmm. row in a single, now you're always rowing in an eight, or you're always rowing in an eight, now you're always rowing in a single. Um, you're on the erg, you go to the boat. You're in the boat, you go to the erg. Like one, one example of this, this transition could be, for example, in, in sculling. Mm. In sculling, when you go from, you're, you've been on the water all season, now you're back, you're rowing more on the erg. Now, when you're rowing on the erg, if you're, if, when you have your hands on the handle, say at the, at the release, your hand, or say mid-drive, like when your arms and body away, your hands are much farther apart. Like when you're in the single, your hands are like that. When yeah. you're in the erg, your yeah. hands are on like uh, are mm -hmm. like that. That that a simple change like that could be something like to trigger an elbow elbow tendonitis. That change mm -hmm. of your hand position at mid drive also changes the 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 stress on the the insertion of the tendon. That's one one example. Some other examples, um, you change the size of your oars or your oar handles. Now I I had an athlete last year who in the middle of head racing season, she changed to a new pair of grips and the grips were a slightly different size. And that was enough because she was in the racing season and you know she just changed her grips and who would think about this? That was enough to set off a, a pretty fierce case of tendonitis in her elbow. And, and her orthopedic doctor actually said that this was most likely triggered from the fact that you changed the size of your oar handles and you just started rowing with them really quickly. And in your case, it was just, you know, maybe you were training hard and not recovering quite enough. And it was just enough to tip the balance. So that's, mm -hmm. that's something to, to watch. Or the shape of your, your grips can be different depending on what manufacturer you use. Um, things like decreased boat stability. Okay. Oh, your boat's oh, yeah. not balanced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, a rigging change. Okay. Rigging changes. What master's rower doesn't like to tinker with their rigging, right? People tinker with their rigging all the time. If you make a change to your rigging, A, and I'm sure we've talked about this before, 
do do one thing at a time and then row with it row with it for a couple of days if you start noticing you know my back is a little sore and it wasn't sore before or i feel something in my shoulder and i didn't have that before and you made a rigging change chances are you've probably changed the load it might be a little bit too much but any any little red flag like that is a sign that perhaps you've loaded up too much um, obviously overtraining somebody who's just wearing themselves down and um, we have what we call under recovery is just going to wear you down you know so when when your tissues get tired then they're, they're going to start to break down um, changing your your training schedule so that all of a sudden like you go from rowing once a day and now you're at a camp for three weeks and now you're rowing two times a day you know that's a very sharp increase you mm -hmm. have to be careful doing doing things like that um changing from sweep to sculling so you know it's like just about everything right <laughs> even changing your seat in the in the boat like say you're used to rowing in a five seat and an eight and now they've moved you to the bow wow. seat yeah. Right. And in the bow where you've you've got to be such a an adaptable rower or, you know, where there's a lot of movement in the boat and somebody who may not, um, you know, some people are just like born bow seats. Right. They, they just know how to help stabilize the boat. and They can deal with all the changes. Other people may not technically have that ability and all that changeability in the boat might not, you know, they might not be able to tolerate that. So. Um, so I think when you're making these changes, you know, be very tuned into your body. Start to pay attention to any little aches and pains. If you're changing boat classes, if you're changing seats, you're changing the size of your handles on your sweep oars, um, the inboard is changing. Any, any little thing, especially for masters, us, as we, you know, as we get older, our bodies, we have to take much, much better care of our bodies so that we don't have downtime. You know, injuries mean lost training time. And, and so we want to avoid that at all at all costs. So being very, I think, very in tuned with, with how you feel. And if you feel any little twinge or something doesn't feel right, err on the side of caution. Take a couple days off, let it settle down. I think it's always better to back off for a couple of days than um, to end up with an injury and a repetitive strain injury, you're looking at a minimum of six to eight weeks, minimum, if you can clear it up in that period of time. But any soft tissue injury, you're looking at six to eight weeks for that to heal. So, Wow, um, that's a lot. And, and who, who wants to miss rowing for six to eight weeks? Nobody. Sit in, you'll have to become a coach and sit in the launch then, right? But, so let's but, talk now about how people can successfully transition from indoor training in the winter to uh, springtime training on the water. As Marlene's already hinted, caution is your watchword. Come back carefully. So when you're doing your first sessions on the water, definitely do less than you think you're capable of in those early sessions. You'll be getting blisters in different places. Maybe your bum will hurt a bit. Um, maybe you'll move your muscles somewhat differently. So take your time. I often find personally when moving from erg training to water training, I've lost a lot of the transition by having in those early outings 
I do a lot of drills. And the mm -hmm. sorts of drills I do are like pause drills, where you can row three strokes, take a pause, row three strokes and a pause. So you're taking the time and doing fewer strokes than you might do if you were doing a continuous 60-minute session on the ERG. But you're giving yourself the opportunity to re-familiarize yourself back in the boat with the equipment that you're going to have to use. Also, when you when you get back on the water, because you're in a movable world in the boat versus versus um, when you're training on land, you're going to be engaging your your postural muscles, your core muscles, your spinal muscles, your muscles for feathering and squaring. You're going to be starting to use again muscles, very many small muscles that you don't normally use maybe when you're training indoors indoors on the erg. So watching the fatigue factor is really big. And like, um, as Rebecca said, doing drills, you know, get right back into good technique so that you're, you're focusing on good strokes. And I would say, keep those sessions short, short, don't stay out until you're really tired, come off the water. When you're not fully fatigued, you can always do some combination workouts too. For example, maybe for a couple of weeks, you do your your actual training on, on the erg for your fitness. And then you go out on the water and you focus the, the first couple of weeks, you just focus on low intensity distance and drills and, and getting your base up and kind of getting those small muscles um, reconditioned again. Be, and, then, and then you start building up the intensity on the water. So I think during that transition, it's it's important not to stop your strength training, and it's important not to stop your erg training for your fitness when you're making that transition. Because if you just start rowing on the water and you're really not up to speed yet, um, you'll actually probably get deconditioned during that period of time. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And don't forget, you need both. In order to move into the spring season successfully, you need the strength, you need the fitness, and you need the skill in the boat. And it's important during the season to, to keep up on your strength training. This was one of the points that, that Will and I talked about is some people are very good about their strength training over the winter and the beginning of the season. They come into the beginning of the season and they're actually really strong at that point. And then they get caught up in rowing on the water and they start to forget to maintain their strength training. So actually, as the season goes on, you, you start to lose strength. So if you've got a very, very long season, say April until November, that, that's a long period of time. So if you don't keep up with your strength work during that time, you know, you're, you're, you're actually going to lose some power, even though you might have better aerobic fitness, you're going to lose some power as the season goes on. And that can also set you up for a repetitive strain injury if you're not, because the strength training helps, um, helps you be resistant to injuries. And that's another very important aspect of our strength training is, is to, you know, keep our tendons, tendons, not just our muscles strong, but your tendons, because most of your injuries are going to happen where the muscle joins the tendon or where the tendon joins the bone. Um, and so those are your areas where you've got a lot of potential, potential stress. So um, your strength training helps keep your, your tendons as well as your muscles strong. Yeah, resilience is the concept that we work towards. You, we're trying to help you build yourself into being the resilient athlete so that you have enough capacity to handle a weekend of, um, you know, two or three or 
sessions of training and then enough recovery so that you can then manage to do something during the week as well. And if you're not resilient, what happens is exactly what Marlene describes is injuries and then missed sessions mm -hmm. and mental frustration. Oh, totally. Let's take a look now at a drill that we think is particularly helpful for this time of year, which is called the ERG suspension drill. What's this going to be helping us train? Your big muscles. <laughs> this, um, suspension, suspension on the drive. Uh, when we talk about suspension on the drive, what we're talking about is trying to use your body weight as much as possible, okay, you know, powered by your legs, powered by your torso, um, but connecting, connecting your leg drive and your, your pressure on the footboards to the handle so that you're, you're using your, your large muscles and trying to get all your body weight, think of this like between your feet, your feet and your handles. And if you can load all your body weight between your feet and the, your handles and be very light on the seat, you're going to really effectively move the boat. And um, suspension is the term is the term for that. And, and sometimes that's a new term for people because um, depending on where you where you are in your rowing, some people may be familiar with the term. But when we talk about drive suspension, we're talking about really trying to use your all your body weight, your power, but your body weight to move the boat, which is um, much more effective, say, than trying to pull the oar through the water. You're trying to move the boat, move the boat past past the oars. So this drill is this drill is a is kind of a fun. It's kind of a fun drill that you can practice. You can practice it on the erg, and then you can transfer this feeling to the water because on on the erg you can you can just because you can do this very slowly and you can set the resistance up whichever type of indoor rower you use, you know, put the resistance up as high as it will go. And um, what you want to do is, you know, you first you start just like up at, say, up at the catch position. And when you um, have the resistance up, you know, just try to take a stroke and just lightly, lightly, as, as you're pressing with your legs, try to lightly lift your weight off the seat or stay light on the seat. So you really feel that you've got, um, consistent pressure with your feet. And you're also going to feel very consistent pressure of the handle on the, on the inside of your fingers. So you can start with just some, some single stroke drills. And this is also a drill to really help use your glutes. Because once you contact with the, with the footboard and you start to drive, as you get into the drive, you, you really want to load your glutes um, because your butt muscles are very strong. And, um, and, and, as we get older, um, we can get what's called gluteal amnesia, you know, where they don't, where it's much harder for the glutes to fire. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, so like just really using your hips, using, squeezing your glutes helps hold that connection in your lower back. So when you want to have a good connection between your leg drive and moving the oar handle, the glutes are very important there for transmitting the force of the legs to, to the handle so that you don't have any slippage in your, in your lower back. So first you can do single stroke, single strokes that way. And then um, I like to have, I like to have people do like the pick drill sequence. So if you're starting say back at the release position, 
you you start rowing like one quarter slide, one uh, one half slide, three quarter slide, you know, from from the release. But as you're doing this, you really focus on keeping keeping the connection to the footboard and, and through the heels and the glutes, so that you feel as you're as you're in this last quarter of the drive that you're still trying to hold that suspension. You're still trying to hold that full weight on the handle, keep the connection to the footboard and then go to half slide, three quarter slide, just like you were warming up in the boat and really focus on the glutes and keeping that um, lightness on the seat so that we're trying to keep all our body weight between our, between our feet and our handles. That's excellent description. Now I have a quick question, which is what do you do with the foot stretcher? So you talked about the flywheel and ramping up the resistance to being high. Should our feet be tied in tight or loose or not at all? You don't have to have your feet tied in if you do this correctly. Now, for some people, this is difficult. This might be this is difficult because they're they're this transition when your whole foot is on the on the footboard. As you as you get to mid drive, you have to put a little bit more heel pressure mm. on the footboard because the heel pressure helps you activate the glutes. And and for some athletes, this this is this is a difficult point for some athletes because if they're pushing from their quads and off the balls of their feet, you no, know, you initiate off the balls of your feet, but then you transition to your whole foot. There are coaches who coach this part of the stroke differently, but um, but I definitely coach like initiate off the balls of your foot, get your whole foot, and then as you're as you're getting to the last quarter. You need a little bit more contact of the heels to keep, you know, you're trying to hold your weight light on the seat. So something's got to help keep you up from the foot stretchers. Um, if your toes are falling away, then if if somebody's in the boat, they, they might want to look at their heel height. They might need to lower their heels a little bit. Um, I don't think you ever have to have your foot stretchers tight if you're I'm maintaining that pressure, that. but... I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'm definitely of the opinion that at low stroke rates, by that I mean probably below 24, mm -hmm. you should be able to erg without the foot straps. Higher than that, that's much harder. And it's a very good training because if you don't hold your core, you will find that your feet come away from the foot stretcher, particularly if you hold on to the finish too long. So one of the things mm -hmm. that I teach in the boat and also <clears throat> in the erg is the minute the pressure comes off your feet, you should take the oar out of the water because mm -hmm. if you're mm -hmm. not pushing yep. on the foot stretcher, you're not connected to the boat. And then what happens is the little hollow of water that's behind the oar. So when you're pushing the oar, you get the water piles up in front of it and you can see that, but there's also a corresponding sort of dip behind the minute the pressure comes off the foot stretcher, that hollow behind starts to fit backfill with water. Mm -hmm. And it makes it hard to get your finish out. Yeah, you're in trouble then. <laughs> and potentially you are breaking the boat rather than accelerating it. Absolutely. So yes. I think this is a useful thing to try and practice. And I encourage people to try it. Um, some people find it easier to do rowing on the erg with bare feet. Um, 
in the boat, you can just not do up the Velcro or shoelaces mm -hmm. on the shoe, mm -hmm. you know, so that your foot is still in the shoe, but you have a little bit of a play. So you actually can feel when your um, sole of your foot comes away from the foot plate. And I think that you're, if you can do Marlene's erg su suspension drill uh, without your foot stretcher, uh, foot strapped in, I think you're a very skillful athlete. Well, I would even say, actually, when I'm when I'm actually coaching on the water and we're we're working on suspension, I I actually really like to carry the whole idea of suspension through the release to the arms and body away. So if we're so if we're looking at suspension, and um, let's define it here, we're looking at suspension as staying light on the seat. So we're trying not to to drop our weight on the seat. Um, there's some things like when when you, as Rebecca said, you know, if your feet are starting to come away, you should you should be out of the water at that point. So in the in the drill when you're doing uh, one quarter slide rowing, you can you can actually practice um, when when you change the direction of the handle or say if you're if you're in the boat and you're rowing by pairs. You, if you you tap down, if you tap down and then you keep your keep some weight out against the oarlock, keep some weight into the rigger, and and we've talked a lot about keeping weight of your hands over the top of the handle. If you keep your weight of your hands over the top of the handle, and you keep that contact to the foot stretcher so that your glutes remain engaged, you can keep your glutes engaged as you tap down and you follow through out to arms and body away. Then at that point, I will let somebody relax their glutes once once we're through that transition, because you can you can pick up an enormous amount of speed by capturing that momentum. So if you don't want to get to the as soon as the legs go down and then let everything fall down, you want to try to stay light, try to stay light in the seat through that transition. But um, you have to you have to use your oar handle and keeping your weight over your oar handle in order to, and keep those glutes engaged so that your posture doesn't collapse. And then you can, you can actually hold the foot stretcher pressure until, until your knees just start to come up. So that's something for people to play with. And um, certainly you can, if you watch your speed coach or your monitor, you'll see the difference in speed. You know, if you're, if you're releasing on time and you're getting a little bit more momentum, your boat is going to carry more speed into, into the recovery. So you can actually um, put, your, put your monitor on meters per second out on the water. And, and you, know, you, you can see some differences as you play around with that timing. Yeah, more than that, the, you also get an additional speed benefit as Marlene describes. Uh, ever study the sine wave of boat acceleration in a rowing boat the way it works is that from the moment you put the oars in the water the pressure and the boat speed build up to a peak and the peak ends pretty much when you take the oars out of the water but as you release and move your arms and body round to wait on the feet again at the beginning of the recovery you get a secondary little peak before the boat speed starts to decline all the way up the rest of the recovery until you put the oars in the water again. And you achieve that, as Marlene's described, by holding the suspension. Holding this, and, and I would say, um, if you are on the water, 
it's very difficult to release too early. I, I don't think I have ever seen it happen, which is different than like if somebody's washing out. That's a different that's a different type of a, a flaw. But like actually releasing early doesn't happen. And if and when in doubt, I would say release. It's better to release a fraction early than a fraction late, because if you release a fraction early when you still have pressure, you're you're going to capture that that momentum. And and I think I think when um, you start to use this reference, if you're in a single, I like to use the reference of the crossover. So I like thinking if you're thinking about your rhythm row crossover, back mm -hmm. to crossover. You know, crossover at the, at the follow through and the recovery, crossover to crossover. And, and if you keep that as your reference for your stroke cycle, you know, that really helps you, helps you with the suspension and carrying, you know, capturing that, that's all free speed. You know, we don't want to give up any free speed. <laughs> Absolutely. So the stroke starts and ends at the crossover. That's good. Yep. Or if you're in the sweep boat at, at the perpendicular, but that, because that's where you're, that's where the natural transition is in, in the rhythm. Absolutely. It is. And on that point. It brings Faster Masters Rowing Radio for March to an end. Marlene, it's been great. Thank you for your insights and your energies. To our listeners, please tell your friends. Write a review and give us a rating. We're on all the obvious channels for podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Store. Uh, we really welcome new listeners. And particularly if you know people in your club who might enjoy listening to what we have to say. Till next time, bye-bye. Thank you.